Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? Not sure if you heard, but like, and I haven't really done the analysis on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm in the city with the most COVID cases per capita in Canada. Oh my God. I was looking up, <laughs> looking at a map this morning and I was actually stunned to see that there were more overall cases in Quebec than there were in Ontario. Like I know um, that both Quebec and Ontario are doing pretty poorly right now, but I would have expected, uh, given the population difference, that Ontario would have had more overall cases, but it seems like it's Quebec right now. Yeah. And, you know, our schools opened two to three weeks earlier. And so maybe that has something to do with it. But also, I mean, it's just a province that I don't know, is having a really hard time with um, with the directives that were being given. And so we're in a, in a red zone, which means that bars and restaurants have been shut down and, and gatherings are banned and you're not allowed to go to other people's houses. And then this week they've closed gyms and sporting events. And so that should help. But I mean, this city has 750,000 people in it. And today, do you know how many cases we had? Um, new cases or cases overall? New cases. Is It's in the 700s, right? I think I saw earlier today. The city, not the province. No, I have no idea. How many in the city? 263 in the last 24 hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> and when you're listening to this, it'll be more, probably, because we're recording on Monday, a, a rare Monday recording. So, you know, maybe enough about me. Maybe we can get back to what it's like to living in the eye of the hurricane of COVID, Canada, COVID land. How, how are you doing? I mean, I, I am newsed out. I, last week... Uh, tried to avoid the news as much as possible because I felt like I was losing it. And part of the reason why we're recording today is because I had a midterm earlier this morning and learned a couple of things from both of those experiences. One, you can't avoid the news. <laughs> it's just not possible. There's too much news. <laughs> you can try. It will get to you. Two, midterms over Zoom. Joke world, joke land, joke world. Uh, midterms over Zoom are not real. <laughs> okay, it's just ultimate bullshit. So, so still have things to discuss today. Um, spent wasted a lot of time studying for a midterm that wasn't really real. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you respect your professor more for having put you through that. Oh God, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fuck, what's going on here? I mean, like, you know, Trump has COVID. And so it just feels like, you know, people are, are, are contacting the people that they know every time there's some sort of update, you know, like, oh, my God, he waved at people in a car. Oh, my God, he sent out another video. Oh, my God, he's on some new drug. And I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want to know anymore. It's too much. Yeah. The real uh, discussions that need to be had are not a play-by-play of what is going on with Trump's health. The real discussions that need to be had are what the implications are, uh, either for the election or for for people and uh, the health of people across America. And unfortunately, you know how it is. People tend to get distracted by the types of things that they see in the news and um, and an inability to to parse through what what is a really important what a really important conversation would need to be coming out of it. 
And so, um, you know, speaking of which, uh, there was some really important news that happened in Canada last week, too. Yeah. Before we get to that, I want to just pause and say thank you so much to everybody this past week who supported the podcast, either through donation or through sharing an episode or talking to your friends. Uh, For folks in the past week who've changed their donation or started to donate to us for the first time, huge, huge thanks to Kasia, to Thornquill, Tommy, Jesse, Rachel, Bradley, Rebecca, Marissa, Colin, and Sarah. Thank you so, so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. So, Sandy, you were just mentioning something that happened in Quebec in the last week. I mean, this is uh, a a really tragic and enraging, yet again, uh, other incident of um, an Indigenous woman uh, being uh, mistreated by one of our systems, and uh, this is the healthcare system. This is someone who recorded a situation where she was being not only subjected to mistreatment in that she was given medicine that she should not have been given because it was dangerous to her, but um, the people who were um, tasked with giving her care were saying the most heinous things about her. And she recorded this situation, and because, God, because she was given um, uh, this medicine that she should not have been given, um, she she was murdered. The past couple of months have focused so much on the police killing uh, Black and Indigenous people. And at the heart of that focus has been cell phone cameras, that a lot of these horrific events are captured on cell phone, and so then they become cultural markers where people can say, look, like you cannot deny what is happening on this cell phone. And Joyce was in the Joliet Hospital. She's an Atamaki woman from Manawan Nation and a mother of seven children, uh, 37 years old. And she went to the hospital because she had stomach pains. And you're right, the medicine that they gave her was morphine, and she was worried that the morphine was too much, that she was saying that uh, that they were giving her too much morphine. And I just am so disgusted and, and find it so tragic to think that in her last moments, she knew that she had to record this to make sure that people saw the insults that she was subjected to And she could say that she thought that they had given her too much morphine. And then she died. Now, the Joliet Hospital was mentioned uh, before in something called the the Vienne Commission, which was kind of like Quebec's version of the, well, I was going to say Quebec's version of like the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Commission or the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But not really. It it was a, a commission that looked at the treatment of Indigenous people in Quebec and it you know went all around the province and it took um it took uh deputations from people uh, and it was started after many women alleged sexual and other kinds of abuses at the hands of the police in Abitibi which is in northwestern Quebec and the Vienne commission actually named the Joliet hospital as being a location where indigenous people are afraid to go um, and I'm part of several Facebook groups of, of folks, uh, and I've seen a couple of comments saying, we know very well that Indigenous people 
are murdered in this hospital with morphine overdoses. And certainly there has been at least one coroner's inquest into another situation where a 17-year-old boy was given too much morphine uh, also after having arrived at the hospital with stomach pain. And so in the aftermath of what happened, um, the two uh, healthcare workers, one was a nurse, one was a, a personal care worker or an orderly, they've both been fired. And uh, tonight, as we're recording this, the provincial government has announced a campaign against racism in the aftermath of this. But it's, I think, really important to mention that... A campaign against racism? I can't say more about it because it literally the news broke as we started to record. (laughs) So uh, we will likely have more to say about that um, in the next couple of days. So watch Twitter. Yeah. Um, But we have the VN Commission report and and the provincial government. Like, what was the one thing that they did from this report? They apologized for the treatment of Indigenous people in Quebec. They didn't do anything else. It's so disgusting, but it's also so fucking typical of how things go in this country. Oh, gosh. Um, geez. I, you know, that that story really, um, really did uh, hit me um, in a way that just made me so frustrated because it is, again, as you mentioned, just another one of the, the institutions where this type of violence and harm um, uh, it tends to be located. And I used the word murder because I think it's quite clear that that's what it is. There, there is a level of intent that uh, I think was exhibited by her um, people who were supposed to be her caregivers um, in uh, the the vile way that they interacted with her. And I don't know what else you could call it. And, you know, it's it's like, okay, so these people were fired, but this is obviously some sort of culture where um, at this hospital and beyond, there's so much in Canada that tells people uh, that it is okay to mistreat uh, Indigenous women. And I think, God, uh, this is... It's just it's, it's so tragic and enraging um, this this outcome, um, and I don't know what a campaign will look like, uh, but uh, hopefully, although I, I'm not I don't have a lot of um, hope for this, but the government recognizes that it's got to do more than just some sort of campaign. Um, they have power over this situation, and they always have, um, and uh, there needs to be more than just a campaign. Um, for for this for this family uh, and for the community as a whole. Yeah, and you know I'm I'm trying to get a bit more of information on on what this campaign might look like. Um, it looks like the announcement was made at the same time as as another big COVID update as well. And so, you know, it's five o'clock on Monday. You know, it's not the best time for news to be released. So we will get you that more more information as we can. But <laughs> in the announcement, Legault actually said that he had an Algonquin great-great-grandmother. Oh my god, why do they do this? Why do they do this every time? I think that that kind of narrative is more pervasive in Quebec because they've, you know, after years of, of fighting English people as colonizers, a lot of Quebecers have, rather than looking at how the Quebecois also are colonizers, a lot of people, it's just easier to assume that you have some sort of indigeneity in your background. Uh, it, it helps to absolve you of the racism that you obviously have in the case of, of Mr. Legault. Um, but, you know, I think that 
Legault has been refusing to talk about systemic racism in this province. And there are signs that that maybe the dam is starting to break on that, that maybe that this is actually the issue because there have been rallies all across the province um, and people are demanding change in a way that's that's different. Um, he he tried to have a meeting. He tried to go around the leadership of the Adamacu Nation, had a meeting with Ghislaine Picard, who's the, the head of the Assembly of, of Chiefs of Quebec in Labrador. Picard refused to go to this meeting. Um, and so Legault has not had a good kind of PR week on this. And I think that if, you know, we have to just keep pushing really, really hard to knock him over on this issue and not get not let him get away with campaigns about racism, but instead actually changing the public policies that are 100 percent within his ability to change. Now, it also, though, isn't just the government. And a lot of our listeners I know are active in their unions. And I, I really, really want us to think about the role that unions play in maintaining these systems. We don't talk about how unions could be a node for, for, for social change when talking about undoing racism within the industries that they operate. But, you know, nursing unions, personal care workers unions, th- th- these are all organizations, of course, other ones, teachers unions, uh, whatever. Uh, they're all organizations that either can work to uphold white supremacy or they work to fight white supremacy. And unless they are actively fighting white supremacy, they are upholding and maintaining white supremacy. And so when I see two people, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, they're nurses, they're supposed to care, they're supposed to be there uh, in a caring kind of way for people. It's like, okay, yeah, but they're also workers. And if if management is racist and their union is racist, then obviously they are going to probably also be racist too. And so we absolutely need to be fighting within our unions to make sure that union leadership is taking this seriously and finding ways through fighting through the collective agreement, fighting uh, on questions of workplace health and safety, fighting uh, on on questions of, of, you know, worker management committees. uh, And then also like, you know, sensitivity training or anti-racist training or both for for their members to actually also not just wait for the government to do this stuff, because we cannot wait for the government to change 250, 300, 400, 500 years of colonialism. Uh, We have some of that power ourselves and we need to be triggering those places that can work also against white supremacy to start doing some of that work. Um, One other thing that I want to mention before we we get into um, our main topic, which is going to be about uh, the second wave, uh, is um, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, there is uh, an address by um, someone named Seth Cardinal Dodging Horse of Sutina Nation, who... Uh, made an address at the opening of uh, this road uh, in Calgary, South Ring Road. And uh, I would encourage you to watch this address if you haven't uh, done so already. And perhaps we can post it to our Instagram for people who um, uh, don't know where to find it. Um, and it is, it's it's just uh, uh, this man kind of speaking back to power about what it has felt like uh, to have his his family's home um, taken from him in the continuing project of colonialism uh, that that Canada is uh, engaged in. In this opening of this road um, and the building of this road, 
uh, his, uh, his family's home had to be uh, demolished. They had to, 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 to move. And in posting about uh, this situation uh, in, on social media, I've had some people um, respond to say, hey, uh, just so you know, the band council agreed to this, uh, to this, uh, this road, and this is actually something that the community agreed with, and, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't post this, uh, whatever. And, you know, I just think it's really critical for people to think um, beyond those uh, sorts of justifications uh, that uh, colonialism uh, will will point to us. Like, look, this is still um, uh, an ongoing project that is uh, affecting people's lives and livelihoods and how they are able uh, to live. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, there is a... Un, uh, there is a an, an uneven uh, power relationship between governments and band councils, and so band councils may agree to things for all sorts of different reasons, and that doesn't change the fact uh, that the colonial project is an unjust project, and the colonial project is negatively affecting Indigenous people. And the colonial project should be stopped. It, it doesn't change any of that. And um, it is of crucial importance to listen to people uh, from these communities who are telling you what their experience is. So um, we'll post that speech so that you folks, our listeners, can take a look. Yeah, and let's not forget, of course, Landback Lane, 1492 Landback Lane. Uh, there are lots of people who are arrested there on their own traditional territory. Uh, and so if you're looking for a place to park some of your money, I know that people there would appreciate it for legal defense funds and cell phone costs and all that kind of stuff. So keep paying attention. Um, you know, the, the process of change is slow, but... There are really a lot of things emerging from this moment that are quite positive um, in terms of resistance. And if you aren't engaged in any of that resistance, now is definitely the time to find a way to get engaged. Okay, so Nora, um, totally unforeseeable events happening across Canada right now. Who would have thought, who (laughs) Mm -hmm. would have thought... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the virus has come back with a vengeance, especially in Quebec and Ontario. Also, surge happening in BC. It looks like um, the uh, the East Coast is doing pretty good, but and the North doing pretty good, but Ontario and Quebec, especially, are uh, are having a having a bad experience and you know the, who can be faulted who can truly be faulted <laughs> no one no one saw this coming at all mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw in uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan are not doing very well either uh, and certainly Manitoba's numbers are rapidly getting worse who could have predicted this you know I it's so funny like one of the the, the great things about this podcast is being able to talk about this stuff every single week in a period of time where time is meaningless means that like in my head, I just keep hearing your (laughs) voice uh, and then my voice and then your voice again, talking about how opening the economy is code for white supremacy and don't open that economy up. What's going to happen? Oh, oh, we shut everything down. And who was hit hardest? Racialized people, poor people. Okay. Everything's open back up. Cases went down in the summer. 
Case is going back up in the fall, as everyone anticipated, except apparently anybody that has any power. What a bizarre moment that we're living in. <laughs> except except they did. They did <laughs> anticipate it. They just didn't give a shit about the people who were going to be most negatively affected because they had their decks in a row. And do you know where, where? I, I think that that is most obvious? Is in education, in education, in education. Like I, you know, we spoke about this months ago. Remember? Do you remember, Nora? Maybe it was weeks ago. Maybe it was days ago. I don't even know. I do know, though, that we recorded a conversation where we said, if they are not ready to open up schools, and if the unions agree that they are not ready to open up schools, they should not open up schools. And if they continue to push forward as though they're going to open up schools, unions should refuse to, to go. They should just mm-hmm. refuse. Nobody listens to us. So that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they but they weren't ready. And in, in Ontario in, in particular, the results seem to be absolutely disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. We're seeing... Um, uh, reports of uh, uh, both um, students and faculty having faculty students and uh, teaching staff um, uh, uh, contracting COVID-19, different responses from different schools about what they have to do um, as a result of that. And and beyond that, (laughs) they started school with some people having the option to do online school and for many of those students, they didn't have teachers for up to two weeks. They were signing on <laughs> to uh, Zoom meetings that just weren't happening. And I'm sure that was really great for their caregivers. Did you see the story in the, tr- in the Globe and Mail that said that the York Region School Board had to put all the kids in online education onto a list in alphabetical order? And then they made classes based on their last names, which meant that there were total classes with kids with the same last names. In one class. Oh, my. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, talk about a a school board that's not talking to teachers who know very well what it's like when you have two kids with the same last name, let alone the kids with the same first name, too, who will also be in that same class. Oh, my goodness. I thought that was a good indication of where things are at. I mean, this is a very um, touchy issue. It's a very difficult issue. Uh, And I think that you know, you're going to approach it differently based on whether or not you have kids in the system, right? Because there's a theoretical aspect of it, and then there's a completely practical aspect of it. And when you're living the practical, it kind of makes the theoretical matter less in, in a lot of ways. But then also the theoretical can help you kind of navigate your your anxieties. Like, what are the odds that my kid's going to get sick in school? And And so, yeah, so the Ontario government opens their schools up and doesn't put a limit on the classes that's lower than normal. And so despite the fact that only like three quarters of kids are in school, which should have reduced class sizes, the government was like, no, 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 we're just going to keep piling them into large classes. And then all the kids that are online can have online education. And so classes remain really, really large. And of course, large class sizes is one of the biggest risks because, you know, kids will transmit the, the illness between each other and larger classes means that kids are in more contact with one another. In Quebec, our class sizes are smaller at the younger ages. And 
I mean, like there's there's outbreaks in the province. There's there's certainly kids have COVID and they're gone. They've gone to school. That's happening in both Ontario and Quebec. But it's very funny. Like I'm in a I'm in a city like as I said at the start with like the highest number of cases, and we've only had one COVID case at our school in a month, and so that case is already kind of quote unquote recovered. Uh, and it's it reminds me that this is an issue that you have to look at three dimensionally. Like there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to kids and school and COVID. It's like who are you in touch with where you might get the, the the illness, right? The illness is not just going to appear. What kind of contact is that? Is that contact at the school or is it outside of the school? Is mom and dad working and then they can't diminish their, their, their exposure to COVID? Or are you worried because you and your partner are at home, but your kid's best friend's parents are working and they might get COVID and they might pass COVID to their kid and their kid might pass COVID to your kid? And then what's that balance between kids being in school and the economy? Because I know a lot of people are like, oh, kids should just be home right now. And I don't share that opinion. Um, I think that it's really important for kids to be in school. And, you know, look at British Columbia. They haven't had any outbreaks in their schooling system. They've also had uh, an education system where the teachers unions gone on strike uh, on a major strike to make sure that class sizes stay small. So, like, big shout out to the British Columbia Teachers Federation for that uh, amazing work. And so, yeah, it's it's a pretty nerve-wracking time for a lot of people and uh you know in quebec i don't think that schools are going to stay open uh probably they've already announced that high schools are going to be in partial shutdown as of um i'm not sure when this week or next week and i feel like it's just a lot there's a lot of generalized anxiety and schooling is uh, is a major part of it especially because you don't want to see the schools close before like fucking gyms are closed you, you want to see things close in order of importance. And I think that people need to understand that school, while of course is deeply problematic, I mean, kids have to be with other kids as well during the day and kids spending six months at home with their parents and siblings is really, really, or, you know, with one parent or no siblings or, you know, whatever was really, really difficult. And it'd be, it's such a shame that if we go there again soon before there's actually a shutdown in general within the society that it's like just sacrificing any progress that, that 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 we should be making for kids to be able to stay in school. Well, I do think that the the most important thing about how school is a site for um, how the folks in power got it so wrong, um, especially in Ontario, is the fact that you know the government says that there's this plan, but in the in the days before school opened up, there were teachers who were inviting uh, uh, reporters into their classroom to say, like, look, uh, they expect us to put uh, 28, 28 children together in this room that is cramped. There's no way for the desks to be apart from one another. The, 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 the teacher in the classroom um, is going to be in a cloud, crowded classroom with a, a bunch of children. And the fact that the government did didn't do anything to to shift um, in the ways that they knew that they would have to. Um, it just makes me so frustrated for the parents and for the for the staff at these schools. And I do wonder um, about uh, why 
um, the, you know, especially with the, the health of their membership on the line, um, unions didn't take more decisive action. Or sooner. I mean, a lot of the actions were taken too late, like the NDP in Ontario passing a motion to limit class sizes in the middle of September was like, uh, are you kidding me? Like, what the fuck did you wait for? <laughs> why? Why didn't you do this in in May? I, I think it's important to kind of like zoom out from schools because like while schools are really important for a lot of reasons, not the least of which, of course, because children are in them. Um, They're not the place where people are going to get most sick. We know that because we know where people are going to get most sick. It's in residential care. Parties thrown by millennials. (laughs) It's in millennial parties. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... What are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) Everybody who's 38 is definitely partying at night right now. (laughs) Yeah. And so the attention on schools, like, I, I think that schools are a bit of a proxy for people's generalized anxiety because it's really obvious because we don't want children to get sick. We don't want teachers to get sick. And every one of us has an experience with school. But that's not the case with residential care, long term care. Not all of us have an experience with that. And as a society that is deeply, deeply, deeply ableist and that ignores the lives and struggles of people with disabilities, it's not surprising me again that there's no focus really on what we're doing to keep people in long-term care safe and you know in the last three weeks of something like 25 deaths in Ontario 19 have happened at the exact same facility in Ottawa the extended care West End Villa and so like there are warning signs and of course deaths there's a huge lag in infection to death right like that lag can be anywhere between two and six weeks and sometimes more. And so, like, while we're focusing on schools, like, where is the solution to long-term care? And I think a lot of this boils down to our obsession with, like, individualizing this pandemic and looking at it through the eyes of a person or a family. And a family, like, necessarily means someone with kids, not a family where there's two parents who might be in long-term care. And when we individualize it, we erase the fact that schools don't drive outbreaks, community spread drives outbreaks, and schools will mirror that. And so if you have community spread, it's going to be apparent in schools. Long-term care facilities don't necessarily mirror community spread. They just mirror what's happening with who is coming and going into their facilities. And we are on the, the, the cusp of another deadly situation in long-term care. And if the the deaths are lower than the last time, it will only be because there has been better medical interventions and earlier medical interventions to try and keep people from from dying from this illness. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that people uh, get sick in their workplaces. And of course, the school is a site of workplaces, is is a a workplace. Long-term care facilities are workplaces as well. And as you say, um, you know, like, yes, there's a consideration of whether or not uh, schools should be open or not, but they're not the, the first place that the government necessarily needs to think about. And so with the facts that these governments across Canada have, have reopened uh, facilities um, like gyms, like restaurants, uh, like, you know, never closing uh, certain types of facilities where people um, get sick because they are working, uh, 
that is a question that hasn't been uh, properly interrogated, I don't think. And, you know, last week, uh, Amazon revealed uh, that um, 19,000 of their workers got COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea if that includes workers in Canada. It doesn't. It does not. Okay, so I would imagine uh, I would imagine that that number is actually quite higher if we were to look at Amazon's employees around the world. Um, but, uh, you know, that really says something about where it is that people are contracting uh, COVID-19 and where the real risks are. And then it it also begs the question of what sort of uh, interventions have our governments been engaging in to stop uh, this sort of spread in institutions where people are working? Well, Sandy, maybe you missed the big press conference today from Justin Trudeau. I certainly but did. he told everyone to download the app. Oh, my God. No, I didn't. <laughs> Yes. And I actually I saw uh, some news that potentially I I believe in Ontario or maybe it was Quebec. I can't remember that uh, volunteer contact tracers, um, doctors who were volunteering to contact people if they um, uh, knew that somebody who had tested positive had come into contact with them, uh, were told to no longer do that work and that they were going to focus on the app. So, you know, technology, technology way better than humans. All the time. (laughs) And thankfully, we're all going to be able to download the apps. This is really going to be super helpful for absolutely everyone who is able to have a mobile phone with apps and uh, people who know how to don't know how to use them know how to use them it's just great <laughs> this is this is just a perfect solution it is actually just such um the embodiment of the problem with how politicians have addressed this issue like the app is interesting for sure you can find out if you came in contact with someone who you don't know necessarily because if you knew them they would tell you probably uh, that they got covid um, but of course, you don't find out unless they enter that information. And uh, by the time you find out, like there's days that have already passed. And then what are you supposed to do with that information? Are you supposed to self-isolate? Are you supposed to run right to a testing center? Was this person like on the other side of your apartment wall? <laughs> because there's going to be no possibility that you got COVID. But if you live in a in a setting where you live really close to people, like it's totally possible that it's going to pick up your neighbors. <laughs> So, you know, there's a lot of problems with the app and it it has to be used in coordination with a lot of other interventions. And so when you're talking about workplaces, well, that and and it it, like just to to also say, you know, like one of the central problems here is that it 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 is putting all the onus on an individual to manage um, what is um, a a very specifically societal problem. Like you can't, yeah. you can't say, okay, Nora, you you must download the app. And if you download the app, you will be acting in a responsible way that will help us to manage this, um, this, this pandemic. Okay, but Nora downloading the app on her own also requires all the people around Nora and beyond to download the app with with a level of um there has to be a level of buy-in that is large enough for Nora's downloading the app to matter to everybody else and how do you force a population to download and use an app with a uh, little room for error mm-hmm. you can't it is better to have someone set up to make the calls if they need to make the calls and tell people, hey, you have been you've come into contact with somebody. 
because there it you're controlling it not by the individual themselves who may have a thousand other things to think about and maybe doesn't have a cell phone that uses apps who knows um it is better to have a contact tracer contact you and let you know because this is a societal issue it's not an individual issue where it's an individual's responsibility to take care of uh of of how how this has spread sorry i just i think it's so ridiculous not to mention that prime minister trudeau can say that all he wants but like alberta hasn't approved it quebec only approved it monday night like we are so beyond a situation where an app is going to be helpful that uh, it's like, OK, that seems a bit late. And it's not approved for Atlantic Canada. And so, like, who's he talking to then? Like the West and, and Ontario, the West, not including Alberta. It's so ineffective. And it, again, individualizes the problem where what we actually need are like government mandates to, one, shut down aspects of the economy. That's very, very clear. And that's happening in Quebec. I guess that will probably happen in Ontario in a little bit. But every single day you wait, you are going to let that virus propagate in significant ways. And so like right now what's happening in Ontario and Manitoba, like the virus is continuing to propagate. And the numbers we have from today are not the current numbers. They are like the current numbers from several days ago, right? We have to think about the time lags and the windows that um, that every data point references. Like if you get infected, you're not going to know that you've got COVID for a couple of days. We know that. Um, and then the other issue, of course, is this question of workplaces. Like, why hasn't the government m- insisted that workplaces provide all employees with PPE? I know a lot of people who still have to, like, get their own PPE. And that doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of uh, other workplace health and safety measures that could be mandated by the federal government or could be na- mandated by the provincial government. There are, are sick leave provisions that, that people need. There are uh, supports that shouldn't go through your your salary, right? So currently, all the people who are getting government assistance through their wage uh, because of the of the Canada wage supplement, it's like... What is the point of that if the company can't stay open or if there's no work to be done? Like, we have been calling for this stuff since March. And the fact that we are in the exact same location that we were in March, like, from a political perspective, while all of us on the ground have already lived through one wave, we've already lived lived through the lull of the summer, now we're starting to live in the second wave, we are all in a different mental space. And whether that mental space is worse, whether it's uh, uh, the same, but you've got more risk tolerance because you know what to expect. I mean, none of us are washing our groceries probably anymore, <laughs> right? Um, th- we have changed. The pandemic has changed how we interact with the virus. But our governments are talking as if it's still March 15th or March 27th or April 3rd. And it is at everyone's fucking peril that they have not figured out how to evolve or I should say not figured out. No, that they continue to serve the interests of capital. They continue to serve the interests of profit and they refuse, refuse to at all upset the markets or upset profits or upset large business owners at the peril of who? Of the people who live in those locations in this country that are more susceptible to the virus. In Toronto, it's northwest Toronto. In all of Ontario, the highest death rate is in northeastern Ontario in the Porcupine Health Health District. And it's like, and where is that conversation? That is a footnote at best in what we are hearing from public health officials, from politicians, and therefore from journalists. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Nobody could have foreseen this turn of events. <laughs> oh, man. It's just, it, it's, it's really hard to not feel like really very, very cynical um, about all of this. It's just, you know, knowing and watching it as it was happening earlier in the summer. I remember us um, critiquing, you know, the daily addresses that Justin Trudeau uh, was given, giving and getting lauded for, and the addresses that um, uh, Doug Ford was giving and being lauded for. Um, and I'm sure that sort of stuff was happening across Canada. I, you know, we we critiqued these things saying, look, they are not doing enough. Like the fact that they're just coming out here and acknowledging a terrible situation and saying that they're going to do everything that they can, we have to be um, uh, critical enough to, to see through that that means absolutely nothing and that we need more uh, concrete um, understandings of what's going to be done or we're going to be in a bad situation. And we were in a bad situation before um, uh, when, you know, the media was more forgiving and uh, opposition parties were more forgiven, forgiving. And now we find ourselves in a very similar situation. Um, although it seems at this point, at least opposition parties are a little bit more uh, uh, less uh, likely to be forgiving or to accept uh, bullshit. Uh, but I don't know that the media is there yet. Um, and I, I just don't know. It's just not good enough. We can't, we have to be able to imagine that our governments can do more for us than just an app and telling people to stop, stop having parties. You know, like they are doing so much for big business during this time period. So much. We deserve that. We deserve those thoughts. They should be doing, they should be working for us. Um, and quite frankly, that's not happening. And people need to, to really see through that. <laughs> 